Welcome to Singing Teachers Talk, the podcast that brings you great interviews, insightful discussions and advice around the topic of singing and teaching singing. Now it's over to your host for today's episode. It's me, Alexa Terry. Hello there. For this week's episode, I am joined by someone who is very loved and well-respected in the world of voice. She was the first singing teacher to be awarded a PhD in voice science in the UK and was awarded the BVA Van Lawrence Prize for her outstanding contribution to voice research in 2010. Her research has taken her into subjects such as vocal health, performance anxiety, teaching young singers and singing in the brain, and she is the author of Teaching Singing to Children and Young Adults. She continues to teach singing, is the co-founder of Vocal Health Education, and works in vocal rehabilitation. Her credentials continue, and Dr. Geneva Williams, it's lovely to see you. How are you, and how is your trip to Chicago to the Nats Conference? Oh, Alexa, lovely to see you too. Um, I had a fabulous time, a really, really great time. It's so good, good to be back in person, you know, to be in a space with people and talking in a group with people. I think we did a brilliant job of making do during lockdown, but really it is, it is so good to be back mm. with people. And there were so many high quality presentations from people from all over North America, because of course, Nats is um, Canada as well. Um, I did a presentation with two colleagues talking about teaching children, which was such fun because we, the three of us, one American, one Canadian and me, and we each had an hour and we talked about different aspects between us. And I think we very much complimented each other because my research is mostly about the development of children's voices and how that informs how we work with them. I did played all my lovely recordings of boys at different stages of voice change so that we we uh, could identify them. We we played the guess the stage of voice change game and we played the guess the age and sex of the child speaker and we played all of those listening things. The other two speakers, I had Dana Lentini, who has worked with a couple of children. Actually, she's she's developed a a protocol for singing lessons, a sort of structure for singing lessons, specifically for children at all different ages and stages. And she demonstrated that with two kids who she's never taught before. So that was quite a brave move of hers. And it was wonderful to see her working and spontaneously adapting her system to the, the two kids that she had with her. And the, the third one was Nikki Loney, who has a very successful publishing business in Canada and publishes music for children, again, of all ages and stages, but written specifically for them, which is really important. And she's such fun. They're both really bubbly, fun people. And uh, we had a great time. Sounds great. And were there any other speakers that really stood out to you? Oh, yes, there were lots. Now you've put me on the spot. Um, <laughs> um, I really enjoyed listening to Dr. Stephen Sims. He's a ENT laryngologist consultant, and he works a lot with singers from gospel choirs. And he was saying that how important it is to really understand the culture of the singers that we're working with. And it's not enough just to know that they sing in a choir and that they do this on Sundays and and to even know what it sounds like. You really need to know about the the whole culture of the gospel choir singer that they if they say I do three numbers in a set now normally you'd think oh that's not very much but a number might be 20 or 25 minutes and they don't know how long it's going to be because it's call and response it it depends on what comes up from the people in the congregation in the church so there's a lot of improvisation there's things that they they don't necessarily plan and so knowing that there is that uh, sort of real elongation of each number makes a big difference to how we view their singing. 
there's also the the fact that they that they will do anything they will sing themselves into real fatigue and exhaustion because that's part of the way that they they you know praise their god and that you can't criticize that but you need to understand it because it's it may be not helping them pace themselves mm-hmm. so that those sort of considerations which um i think we don't always appreciate we can't appreciate we're only looking from outside but to know that there is something that we need to find out that just i suppose the message is never assume never assume you know mm. what someone else's lived experience is yeah and the other thing i really want to know from your trip is did you treat yourself to a deep pan pizza i didn't actually no <laughs> <laughs> i'm not a huge fan of the of the big bready ones you know so uh no we did have some lovely food uh but not a deep pan pizza <laughs> Well, there are so many topics that we could talk to you about. Um, And I thought today we could go down the road of vocal rehabilitation, if that's okay. Um, What actually is vocal rehabilitation? And at what stage is the rehabilitation coach introduced to the singer? Oh, two, two great questions. Vocal rehabilitation is the process of restoring health to a voice user who has for whatever reason either injured their voice tired their voice the voice is affected by other systemic health conditions for whatever reason their voice is not working as well as they would like and it's a generally a health-based concern the rehab specialist helps them to find out what it was that would may have been causing problems to uh identify those to work with them on their lifestyle their habits pacing the voice giving them exercises to shift the balance in voice use so that they're not necessarily causing so much impact on their voice when they're using it so it's a a quite a broad spectrum of of concerns but the rehabilitation specialist is specifically taking the injured singer or the singer who has a problem, restoring them to health, to healthy function, and then will hand them on to a singing teacher who will have an enhanced knowledge of working in, in vocal health, but isn't necessarily a rehabilitation specialist. So in the States, they refer to that as a habilitation specialist. So the vocal habilitation specialist or or professional is the singing teacher with enhanced knowledge the rehabilitation specialist is somebody who will work with a clinical team right and and when is somebody seeing a rehabilitation specialist normally if you're part of a clinical team they will come to you after they've seen a clinician so after they've had a um endoscope with a um a doctor or after they've had treatment from a speech and language therapist sometimes people self-refer so i often get people just coming to me because they've got my details from the internet and i'm the first port of call for them and so it's then up to me to make a judgment call about whether they need to go on and see a doctor and this is this is the where there's a conundrum because everybody says singing teachers do not diagnose should not diagnose and they're right i would never diagnose i would never say to someone oh you sound as if you've got nodules or you sound as if you've got muscle tension dysphonia that is not my job i can say what i hear which might be hoarseness, or it might be a voice that sounds strained, or a voice that sounds tired, or a voice that is um, maybe just running out of steam a bit too early. You know, it, it gets tired after 10 minutes instead of after two hours. So I can say what I hear, and I can um, echo back what the client says to me. I can't diagnose, but I can have a fairly good idea about whether this is a functional problem or a pathological problem. 
Now, the way I tell that is the functional problem will alter as we change voice use. So if somebody comes along and they've got a hoarse voice or they're um, missing a bit of their vocal range or something, if I, within my first session, I will talk to them a lot, ask them lots of questions, and then I will play games with sound and we try things out and we'll, we'll make it quite fun and quite playful and often not uh, very much related to the kind of singing that they might do. So they're just using their voice in a different way. And in that, I can find out whether they're actually capable of producing an easy, clear sound that is comfortable to them. And if they can produce an easy, clear, even tone all the way through their vocal range without any issues at all, then I know that it's most likely to be a functional problem that I can help them with. If we hit a, a block where they just can't produce a sound in a certain part of the pitch range, whatever we do, or if the voice is always a little bit breathy or always a little bit husky, or it's just painful, whatever we do, then those are my red flags. And that's where I would suggest that they go and, and get into the system to see a doctor. And as we know, the development of a voice and the singer is very rarely just at the vocal fold level. It's a very all encompassing thing. And you mentioned there that the rehabilitation specialist is part of a team. And this is kind of what happens at the voice care centre, isn't it? You have lots of people which make up this multidisciplinary team. So who's in that team and how does that come together? I love working in the voice care centre. I really love it because the team have a huge range of specialisms, but we all have a pretty good idea of what everybody else does. And that I think is really important because then we can understand the process that they're going through with the client and we can then take over from that and put in our bit. So I'm the singing voice person on the team. We've got two speech therapists. We've got an osteopath. We've got two massage therapists. We've got a, a nutrition specialist, an exercise specialist. So he, he knows it's the same person, the nutrition and exercise, both Duncan Rock. And he will work with somebody perhaps who want, needs to work out of the gym or wants, is, is looking to build their body in a particular way or needs some targeted exercise to get back on track after uh, an accident or something like that. So he's and he's actually training as a physiotherapist, as well as being a nutrition expert. Um, we've got um, a, a consultant in uh, female hormones, Joanne Bozeman, so they can go and have a, an online conversation with her to get advice uh, about menopause, about other hormonal um, issues. She has a, an understanding of conditions like a polycystic ovaries, like endometriosis, things about which we actually don't know that much. There's a, a real lack of research into the impact that those things have on the voice. Mm. But just knowing that there will be a link is very important and, and important for our clients to be able to talk to somebody about that. We've got people who are hearing specialists. We've got people who are um, experts in advising on the kind of tech gear that you have, what in-ear monitors to have, what microphones to use, how to work your own gear if you haven't got a sound technician. So, so many different aspects of vocal health that all feed into this holistic um, human in the middle of it. And it's very, it's absolutely crucial, actually, that we all have this holistic idea of the person. We refer a lot to the biopsychosocial model, which is taking the bio aspect, which is the the biomedical, everything that about them to do with their, their physical state, any illnesses they have, any um, injuries they might have or have had in the past. You know, we need to ask questions about their life, whether they fell off a horse at the age of 10, whether they've 
been in a car crash and had whiplash, even if it was 10, 15 years ago, there'll be some memory of that in the body. So all of that is the bio, what medication they're on, whether you know they're being treated for other conditions. We also look at the biomechanical and the biomechanical is the way they stand, the way they move, whether they've got a stiff neck, whether they've got you know a painful jaw. The biomechanical involves their singing technique, the way that they use their voice. So that's just in one part of this complex human. We've got the social side, which is the, that's not just whether you're going out with your friends and having a nice time. The social is your environment. So it's your rehearsal schedule. It's the room that you're singing in. It's also your environment at home. Are you actually getting into arguments at home and, and getting a bit stressed by that? Are you being kept awake by a young child through the night and losing sleep? Are you worrying about an elderly parent who you're trying to look after, but you can't always be with them? All of that comes into the social, the social part and the, the psychological part, which is covers your mental health. It covers your belief systems. So believing that certain treatments will help or believing that certain activities will be problematic, believing that the advice you've been given by a particular teacher must be the right advice. All of those things we have to take into account and respect. And the, uh, the main point of the psychological, I always say, is everything that's ever been said to you in your life, because somewhere there's a memory of that and your body and your mind are one thing. And the memory will be there in your body and will be affecting the way that you use your body. So all of those aspects, the everything about somebody, we, it really helps us if we have a, an idea of as much as we can. Obviously, nobody can know everything about everybody, but as much as we can, so that we can help somebody understand what may be going on with their voice and how their life is impacting their voice use. And as soon as they understand that, then we can take away some of the anxiety that is coming along with, with the, the, whatever the issue is and help to facilitate change. Mm. And do you find that singers are quite open with, with all of that information or does it take a, a couple of sessions to make the singer feel comfortable to kind of share those experiences with you? I think a lot of it depends on how you ask the questions. And there is a real skill in asking questions that begin with open questions and then you gradually narrow it down so that you're not asking unnecessarily personal questions, but that you're homing in on what is relevant for the situation. And that's a skill, I mean, that's a skill I, I had to learn. I did a coaching course that, that trained me and I've also been giving it an awful lot of thought and talking to people about this since then. So I think, yes, the skill in asking the questions is really, really important. And also knowing that you'll never know everything. You know, there, there are always gonna be surprises. And so this is another reason for the team because they will say something to me that they may not say to the osteopath, but they may say something to the osteopath that they haven't said to me. So we talk to each other mm. and we share notes and we have a meeting every month where we discuss all the cases that we're working on and any issues uh, across bet between all the different, the different skills on the team. Um, and so, yes, it, it is often, you find out a lot in the first session, but then more things come through. Singers tend to be aware of what's going on in their life. Mm. They, they tend to be pretty tuned into the things that are worrying them. And they, they are very good at knowing what is causing them issues and what they can deal with quite easily themselves. And I'm very much uh, made aware of that when I deal with people who aren't performers 
and mm -hmm. I do voice work with with people just I do voice work on their on their spoken voice and I realized then goodness they're really not not in touch with themselves in anything like the same way that singers are mm. and who's actually got the remit to rehabilitate voices oh well <laughs> um legally you need to be covered by insurance or you should be covered by insurance if you're not you're a bit of an idiot uh, so in order to be covered by insurance an insurance company will ask for qualifications um so there's there's at the moment the only qualification that is offered specifically for rehabilitation specialists is the one that we run at the um vocal health education now that qualification the the voice rehabilitation specialist is still uh we're still working our way with through with the first cohort of teachers so actually there's nobody yet who has that qualification i don't have that qualification i've, I've put together the course but i've not i can't be qualified in a course that i've put together um, i do have my own insurance and that's through a different scheme um, any clinical clinically trained person will have also have that have that cover because they're registered they're registered with the hpc hcpc and they are a, um, a clinical body who recognize different qualifications and that it that covers you it covers the practitioner in case there's a claim made against them, but it also covers the client so that they have got recourse if they feel that they've that something has gone wrong with their treatment. So those sort of, of safeguarding measures are very important because at the moment, anybody can actually call themselves a rehab specialist. Mm. And if you go to their website, you might see that they've got um, endorsements from clients, you might find that they've got a lot of experience, but there's nothing on there that will give you an idea of whether or not they would do a good job, mm. unless you can see that they work in a team with other clinicians. So it's a, it's a thorny thing, and it's even more uh, complicated in the States. The vocal health education have our insurance scheme that will cover our trained practitioners to work with anybody anywhere in the world except for in the United States. I can work online with somebody in the States but I can't do in-person work with them and be covered by my insurance. We're working on it. I'm, I'm in meetings at the moment with various people uh, who work in rehab in the States and we're, we're trying to put something together to make it possible. As I mentioned in the intro, you are the author of Teaching Singing to Children and Young Adults, which I've read about seven or eight times. And well, excellent. <laughs> I'm not trying to be a brown nose or anything, Ginevra, but it's it's one of my favourite vocal books so far. So yeah, it's mm. been one that I have, the pages are dog-eared, it's been highlighted. Um, <laughs> it's one of my favourites, but yeah, I'll stop brown nosing now. Um, is there anything different in the vocal rehabilitation process for children compared to adults? Um, yes, uh, that children have been are younger, so they've been around for less time, so there will be less baggage generally. There are fewer children working professionally, so they, the non-professional voice users won't have the same pressure on them not to say they don't have pressure they do very much um, there's different sort of pressures children may be less aware of what they're doing and they often will you know charge around yelling their head off and not even think about it they won't be a, necessarily be aware of the fact that if they are a bit of a worrier that worrying will have an impact on the way they use their voice um, I'll just explain that one a bit, actually, because people say, why, why would worrying affect the way I use my voice? And it's to do with the, the um, autonomic nervous system. So when we are worrying, we are in a low level of 
our sympathetic nervous response on a sort of long-term basis. So the sympathetic nervous response is, we know it as the fight flight response. In a uh, sort of hunter-gatherer society, the fight flight response is crucial to keep you alive. It wasn't triggered very often. It's not, it's not an everyday occurrence. It's just occasionally something terrifying happens and you either run for your life or, um, you know, attack the thing that's attacking your child. And it's a very, very useful response to have. That in our modern society is far less prevalent that that that, that emergency response is necessary. But we are much more likely to have a low level of worry and anxiety in our lives. And that low level of, of worry will keep our uh, cortisol levels a little bit raised. And that's a, a stress related hormone. And that means that our whole system is on alert at a low level. And on alert means that you're holding your body ready to run, ready to lash out, ready to do something. And that subconscious holding means that you're not using your body in the easiest way possible. You're not really releasing as you use your body. So your breathing may be held and tight and gripped and your neck may be a bit held and tight. Um, your upper body will be ready, as I say, ready to, to run. So that means that you're, if you're using your voice a lot with a little bit of holding all the time, then it's going to get tired more quickly mm -hmm. and you're more likely to use it with a higher level of impact than you would otherwise. Mm. So that is why worry and anxiety and fear can lead to voice problems. Mm. Makes a lot of sense. And can we stick in the science area actually for, for a bit, mainly so I can look a bit more intelligent <laughs> than I feel. Um, one intention, I guess, for vocal rehabilitation is to relearn unhelpful habits. So what is actually happening in the brain when we're relearning stuff? We are uh, we're, we're recruiting different pathways. So you can think of it as rewiring, but we're not actually growing anything new. We're just taking a slightly different journey through the neural pathways in the brain. And those journeys are patterns that we learn. Our, our life is governed by learned patterns of behavior because otherwise it would be ridiculously complicated, right? So you wake up in the morning and to get out of bed and, you know, take yourself off to the bathroom or take yourself off to the kitchen. If you had to think about every movement that you made and exactly where to find the kettle and where to find the mug and what you, you had to remember exactly what you needed to do to boil the kettle and make yourself a cup of tea. That would be exhausting and you really wouldn't get very far in your day. We do about 95% of our activities on autopilot. Mm. We don't think about them. And some of them we do completely uh, automatically, like walking, for example. We don't give any attention to the way that we put one foot in front of the other, unless we're in pain or uncomfortable or wearing a pair of shoes that we're not used to. And then that, that sets things off again. But there are so many motor skills. So the motor is, is the part of the brain that sends the message to the muscle. So that's the message going out of the brain into the muscle, motor function gives the instruction of how much to contract at what point and how that relates to all the other muscle contractions going on at the time and balancing the body. And I mean, it's, it's incredibly complicated if you think about it, taking one, one step in front of the other is a, a really complex thing that we do. But we've learned it when we were little and we remembered it. Now, the way we learned it when we were little toddlers was by falling over a lot. 
So making mistakes and getting it wrong is a really important part of the learning process because we, we get it wrong, we get it wrong, we keep trying, we keep trying until one, we do one that works. And then we remember that. The brain remembers the one that worked and we'll then go down that path. Now, when we are relearning habits, we can't erase the stuff that we've learned. What we can do is form new pathways that then replace the old ones. So how do we get them to replace the old ones? It's all to do with myelin, which is a insulation in the brain. And if your brain pathway, neural pathway that is joining all of these bits of the brain that is powering the motor neuron to trigger the muscle action, if that pathway is used over and over and over again, it will develop a kind of insulation around it, which is called myelin, the myelin sheath. And that insulation means that that electrical signal going down the neuron will move quicker and it'll find its way down the path much more quickly. So that is the pattern. That's the learned pattern in the brain. And if we are learning a new one, we've got to start building the myelin again. So we have to repeat the new pattern over and over again. And then we will form that pathway and we're more likely to go down the new one than the old one if we've repeated it often enough. Mm. Now, there are all sorts of things that we can do that will help us to remember that pathway and help us to form that pathway more easily. Mm. And we can aid that learning process by multisensory stimulation. So if you are learning the new skill and linking it with a visual stimulus and linking it with something that you're listening to and linking it with uh, maybe an idea of a smell or a taste or a, a feeling. A feel, the feeling can be the feeling in your body or it can be an external sensation. Any of those multisensory stimuli will help you remember that. It'll help that, that pathway to form. Uh, what else will help it is the presence of the neurotransmitters, which is a sort of chemical bath in the brain. And the right neurotransmitters in the brain will mean that the signal travels more easily. And those are things like endorphins, oxytocin, um, the um, hormones for um, desire and reward, so serotonin and the other one, which will come to me in a minute, um, but, which are uh, a dopamine, that's the one. Those will help us remember things. So one of the things that's really important for the rehab specialist or the singing teacher or whoever is helping the learning process, the parent, is that the person they're helping is to make sure they're happy, mm. to make sure that the process is pleasurable and even fun. And then you'll be creating this chemical bath in the brain, which is helping the memories to form. Mm. And on that, um, what can we be doing? I know that you mentioned in your first kind of rehabilitation sessions, it's very playful. It, it goes outside of what they might be used to singing and it, it's just on that kind of more fun spectrum. It's, it's not likely that we're always going to feel happy, but can we make a shift in our lessons so that there is a more optimal space for learning, a more optimal environment for learning to happen. Creating a safe space, mm. really, really important. And a safe space is created firstly with trust. So you have an agreement and we call it a contracting, but it, it doesn't necessarily need to be a formal agreement. You just establish a relationship with the person right from the outset tell them what you're going to do, acknowledge their situation with empathy, but not with, you don't need too much. Oh, you poor thing, that must be awful, because that's actually going to reinforce negatives. Mm. So just creating a safe space, which is, I think it's one of those, those um, uh, intangible things that that we learn don't we as a human interaction that we learn to create a safe space then the kind of play that i do with people is 
you know, experimental really. I'll try little things and see whether, how they go with it. I use a lot of physical movement because, because of those holding patterns. If somebody's a little bit tense, a little bit holding on, then if I get them just to make simple movements of the head or the shoulders or to walk around the room or any kind of, of movement is going to help to loosen that up. Mm. So it depends on how easy they are with making those movements, whether they find it self-conscious or, or a bit silly or whether they'll really go for it. I mean, some people are quite happy to sing their song bent double, hanging upside down and singing out between their ankles. And that that's perfectly fine for them, whereas other people uh, wouldn't be able to do that. So you might they might just walk around the room and sing. And so with children, with with young people, you can create that sense of play and sense of fun. And I might do things like throwing and catching a ball mm. while they while they're making sounds with the voice. Um, I might work on maybe get them to blow something um, across the top of the, the table, maybe a ping pong ball or something, so that they they've got a focus to what they're doing, but it's actually providing me with information about how they're using the breath. Mm. So lots of games, lots of, of fun, get people laughing pretty pretty much straight up into the into the session that will help to to loosen things up and, and relax a bit. Mm. Um, it is it is an iterative process. There isn't a, a set order for doing things. People often ask me what my questions are, what my intake form is, and I don't have one and I won't have one because I'll start by asking the first couple of questions, which will be standard, you know, why are you here and what would you like to be able to do? Mm. But from that point onwards, it each question depends on what they've provided me with beforehand. Mm. And that's the same for singing lessons. It's not specific yeah. to, to rehab. This is just a human interaction. Mm. I have three scenarios for you um, that I'd love to get your thoughts on. And they're all fictional cases, but some that singing teachers and vocal coaches might be able to relate to. So the first one is uh, a teacher meets a new client who is currently having rehabilitation sessions with a specialist. Can they still continue to work with this client and what should they be looking out for? I think it's really important that everybody talks to everybody else. Mm. So I will always, if I know that one of my rehab clients is with a singing teacher, I will always ask if we can set up some communication between us so that I can tell the singing teacher what I'm doing and why I'm doing it and what helps and what works. And the uh, singer can also talk to the teacher about what they've done with me and what they can talk to me about what they're doing with the teacher. And it's all open and easy and there's no complication. Mm. I'm surprised at how often people say, I don't want my teacher to know that I'm coming to see you. Oh, and this is because they think that the teacher will then feel betrayed somehow mm. and feel let down by the fact that the singer may perceive that they're having problems and may feel a need to look elsewhere for help. Mm. Um, so I don't argue with it, but it does makes me feel a bit sad when I when I get that message. Um, but provided we can have open communication, if you're that the teacher and your student is going for some voice rehab, ask if you can sit in, mm. ask if you can be there either online or in person and ask questions. Mm. Why did that work? That was a really odd thing to try. What, what was that achieving? Gosh, I wouldn't have thought of doing that. You know, get, just get, get some communication going. Mm. Um, yes, of course, you can all work together in parallel. And if there's a, I mean, if I'm going to make a big change in somebody's use, or it's going to take a while to shift things, or um, there's a more complex problem that's going to need input from more than more specialists than me, then I might suggest that it, it was an idea to, to pause the singing lessons for a while. Mm but always to keep open communication. Mm. Um, of course, the time when 
the singing teacher may be asked to to pause the lessons would be if there is some pathology so and this is a very different thing if you're dealing with somebody who's got the pathology is an actual illness um, of the larynx so that may be any the lumps and bumps that we all know about you know polyp persist and nodules any of those issues or um if they've got swelling for some reason redness and swelling or if they've got um pain around the larynx that that is unexplained and or if there's a pathology that is linked to another systemic illness so there may be issues um you know redness swelling inflammation that are hormonally triggered or they may be due to other medications that are being taken mm. or you know there, there's so many different possibilities and they may need to be resolved before it's useful to keep, to resume singing lessons which actually brings me on to scenario two it links quite well what would your advice be here after picking up on a few clues in the studio a singing teacher believes that their student would benefit from seeing an ENT however the singer makes the decision not to follow that advice for the time being so what options does the singing teacher actually have in that scenario I've had that myself um sometimes people are terrified of the scope i mean not everybody wants that wiggly thing put up their nose and into their throat um it is an odd sensation um sometimes they are really worried about what they might find and so they're in some kind of denial about about what could be found and so i would address that and try and have a conversation about why don't you want to go you know are you worried about something would you like to just talk to your GP about it instead? Is there somebody else that you might be able to go to to talk this through and talk about why, you know, what the worry is? Um, so I, I wouldn't just, you know, ignore it and, and let it be because it, it will be for another reason. If they don't want to go, that's the reason they don't want to go is the thing that needs to be addressed. Should they change their approaches in the lesson, do you think? Well, it depends what you think might be wrong mm. with the, the the singer. I've had, I mean, I did have one student, I remember, who uh, could only sing high notes if she put her head right onto one side, mm. uh, which to me suggests some kind of, of uh, paresis, sort of weakness on one side of the, the larynx. And that really needs to be dealt with because it could be the beginning of a neurological disorder i mean sometimes voice problems are the the, the warning mm. the precursor to some kind of of neurological thing like parkinson's like motor neuron disease like you know things that that really do need to be dealt with at an early stage if possible so that to me was was a worry was a red flag and she refused to go absolutely refused to go and I did get to a point where I just said, I don't think I can carry on giving you singing lessons because this is it's a, a situation I can't work with. I can't help you to improve your voice mm. if this is the only way you can do it. So um, we had to part company. Mm. Now that's a, a very unusual one because I would always say that people are better off being seen by a singing teacher than by nobody. Mm. At least as somebody keeping an eye on things and somebody who they trust, who they are going to regularly, who is looking out for their best interests. Mm. So parting company is an absolute last resort. Mm. And uh, my final scenario, um, I have a client who uh, who's returned to a singing teacher after surgery, therapy and rehabilitation sessions. However, after a few lessons, the teacher picks up on some of the audible and visual clues that they had picked up on prior to the diagnosis. Is this cause for concern or is the teacher picking up on maladaptations at this stage? <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? So maladaptations are the sort of the compensatory strategies that we we will use in order to try and get voice to happen when we've got something wrong, something getting in the way. So, for example, you know, if I hurt my left knee, 
I will be walking with more uh, weight and more effort on my right leg. And then I might get pain in my right hip as a result of that. So, you know, the problem will spread from one place to another. I might be getting treatment for my left knee and the left knee gets better, but my right hip remains painful once it's better because those habits have remained. And we obviously we do the same in the voice. So if you've got um, vocal folds that are not coming together easily because you may have some, some pathology getting in the way or something that you then may have surgery and have it removed, then it's very important that you relearn all your habits mm. so that you don't do the pushing and squeezing and straining that you did in order to try and get sound out, that you learn that you can let go of that. You can do things differently right from the outset. So if somebody's had rehabilitation, theoretically, they should have dealt with all of that. Mm. But we do revert to old habits. And we do we revert to old habits when we are uh, under stress. Mm. So you may have your rehabilitation and you're not working at the time and you learn your new habits and you're discharged and you go back to your teacher and everything's fine. And then you go back to working and you go back to singing and you go back to the stress that caused that may have triggered the cause of the problem in the first place. Mm. And those habits come back. So that is a case of recognizing is this the social part of the biopsychosocial that is causing those maladaptations and we may need to address those rather than just working on you know breath patterns and um you know relaxing your shoulders or whatever it is we actually need to look at the the fact that your director of the show that you're working in is really annoying you Mm. or listening to you or asking you to do things that are unreasonable like carry heavy items of furniture while you're trying to sing a difficult phrase mm, yeah so that <clears throat> that again is all of that detective work trying to trying to get to the bottom of what it is that's that's going on mm. and we really love to share resources um here at bast we we want to provide as as many resources and links and everything to our listeners as possible so what have been your favorite resources doesn't have to necessarily be um rehabilitation but it can be any kind of vocal resource that you like oh well as i'm a bit of a, a, a scientist i tend to go to peer-reviewed journals which is not everyone's favorite uh, destination um but friendly easily written resources my favorite book actually my all-time favorite book which i'm getting off my bookshelf now is called everyday voice care the lifestyle guide for singers and talkers and that's by joanna casden now joanna's a very good friend of mine she's a um one of these rare creatures who is a very experienced speech and language pathologist, but she's also a very experienced singer and performer. And she's got a lifetime of wisdom behind her. So that's a very, very good book to get hold of. It's published by Hal Leonard. I feel like a teacher's pet because I've got mine here. <laughs> We're both holding up our copies in front of the camera. And it's just a really easy book to read. So that would probably be my number one go to for for singers for performers there are more um complex books that are out there for people who want to learn more about rehab i'm i'm looking at my bookshelf as i'm talking um which are the ones that are really good the the voice clinic handbook is a good one it's a bit of a monster it's huge but it's got an awful lot of information in it Ah, yeah, Manual of Singing Voice Rehabilitation. That's, that's another monster book. That's by Leda Scarce. Um, Manual of Singing Voice Rehabilitation, A Practical Approach to Vocal Health and Wellness. That's for pump somebody who's pretty keen on, on looking further into rehab as a possibility. Um, then my other textbooks are pretty clinical, actually. They're, they're, they're more heavy going than you would want. 
Oh, it's a good book by Sue Jones. I'm really rambling now. I go through my entire book bookcase. Sue Jones, who's a speech therapist based up in Manchester, and that's called Laryngeal Endoscopy and Voice Therapy, a clinical guide. That's quite a good way of, of knowing what the voice looks like as well as sounds like and what's going on. So there's a there's a few. There are a lot of general books which have got a bit of a section on vocal health in them. As other resources, um, well, Vocal Health Education is a very good website. Um, my website's got quite a lot of articles that are free to download that you can access. The National Centre for Voice Studies, that's a good website. And it did have a really excellent section on the impact of different medications on the voice. And I'm not sure whether that's still on there, but that's another very very useful resource great thank you for sharing those and Geneva I can't thank you enough for give, giving me some of your time today where can people read up more about you if they don't know you already which would be nuts to me um, if that's the case but where can they read up more and get in touch with you if you go to my website my personal website which is GenevaWilliams.com. so all you need to do is be able to spell my name right and then you'll find my website you can contact me through that. You can find all that information to download. The Vocal Health Education website has access to all of this training and loads and loads of courses. And some of our resources on there are, um, well, talking of resources, you know, there's the breathing, mm. optimal breathing resource. There's a voice care for singers resource. Each of those costs 10 pounds. 10 pounds and you've got about three or four hours of, of film information on that so incredible bargain uh, so that's vocalhealth.co.uk the my own courses on for teaching young voices and for singing teachers getting the the foundations and fundamentals of singing teaching they are launching any day now on my evolving voice website so that's evolvingvoice.co.uk and those courses will be uh, they're online films delivered online and um, individual mentoring with me amazing well Geneva, thank you so much it's been lovely to see you it's always lovely to talk about something which is so close to my heart i'm absolutely passionate about rehabilitating voices i'm passionate about helping singers to sing more easily and to be able to sing with all of the creativity and imagination that they want to without anything getting in the way hear hear looking to expand your vocal knowledge and add to your teacher toolbox then you're in the right place Basta here to guide you with our membership, a growing virtual library packed with educational videos spanning a whole host of voice teacher topics. It's just £1 for the first two weeks and £6 each month after that. Now that's what I call a bargain. To join, just head to our website www.basttraining.com.